You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. You have no style. You can park all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, though if you're a woman of childbearing age in America, you probably didn't. Yeah, I won't talk about that. I'm still in Washington, and a few days ago, I got to pay my respects to Bruce and Brandon Lee at their gravesite, so that was pretty cool. I'm blanking on the name of the cemetery, but they make sure that those graves are actually very well taken care of. In a way, a lot of Hollywood cemeteries I've been to, yes, I've been to many Hollywood cemeteries, that they don't tend to, like they let Marilyn Monroe's grave, pretty much people do what they want, they kiss it, which is super messed up. But yeah, no, at this one, they like have a ramp for them, like it's it's paved in a nice tasteful way so that like people don't trample the grass very well thought out um if you're in the seattle area you want to pay your respects i highly recommend it it was really cool to see on to this week's topic this week we're taking a hodgepodge look at life on and after the blacklist how some coped how the blacklist weakened over time, and how history has remembered some of the friendlies. We'll also cover the story behind a piece of American literature that takes place during the Salem Witch Trials, but is really about HUAC and McCarthyism. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. The nominations for Best Motion Picture Story are Robert Rich for The Brave One, Leo Katcher for The Eddie Duchin Story, Jean-Paul Sartre for The Proud and the Beautiful, and Cesare Zavattini for Umberto D. The envelope, please. The brave one, Robert Rich. Mr. Jesse Lasky, Jr., as vice president of the Screenwriters Branch of the Writers Guild, will accept the award for Mr. Rich. On behalf of Robert Rich and his beautiful story, thank you very much. Congratulations. The Hollywood blacklist reached its apex influence in the early to mid-1950s, starting in 1952, when the Screenwriters Guild allowed movie studios to omit the names of any individuals who were seen as communist sympathizers. For example, Hollywood tenor Albert Maltz wrote the screenplay for The Robe in the 1940s, before his blacklisting, but he did not receive an on-screen credit when the film came out in 1953. For decades after making this decision, though, the Writers Guild, as it's known now, and it's split between East Coast and West Coast, which it wasn't at the time, have been attempting to correct the screen credits from those movies from the 1950s and early 60s that implemented this rule to ensure that proper credit is given to those who either acted as ghostwriters on a project or wrote films under an alias. On December 19th, 2011, for example, the Guild, acting on a request made by his dying son, 
Christopher announced that Dalton Trumbo would get full credit for his work on the screenplay for the romantic comedy Roman Holiday, which came out in 1953, almost 60 years after the fact. Cracks in the Hollywood blacklist would occur early into this whole mess, honestly. In fact, they occurred sooner than you might think. One of the first was director Jules Dassin, whom got a directing job for a stage play starring Betty Davis in 1951 after having been named in director Elia Kazan's HUAC testimony. Dassin also went to Europe, where he wrote and directed films like 1955's Rafifi. Several other blacklisters attempted to pull money together to make a film outside of the studio system, like in the case of 1953's Salt of the Earth. The film was directed, produced, and starred individuals on the blacklist, and was written by Hollywood tenor Herbert Bieberman. But the reach of the studios was long, and they threatened theaters that if they showed the blacklisters' films, the theaters would be blacklisted from the studios. As a result, Salt of the Earth couldn't recoup the money it cost to make it. Hollywood tenor Lester Cole, upon being released from prison, worked a series of odd jobs, including short-order cook, waiter, and manual laborer waiting for the chance to get paid to write, which he did, though he could not be credited by his own name due to the blacklist. Also, those writing jobs were far and few between. Another Hollywood 10 member, Alva Bessie, never worked in Hollywood again. Neither did Samuel Ornitz, whom returned to novel writing before being the first member of the Hollywood 10 to die in 1957. Bessie and Ornitz were the only two of the Hollywood 10 to never return to the silver screen. With the blacklist still very much in effect, actor Charlie Chaplin was barred from re-entering the United States in September 1952 after going abroad to promote his semi-autobiographical film Limelight overseas. Chaplin was told that he would have to submit to an interview concerning his political views and moral behavior in order to re-enter the United States. Chaplin had been one of the unfriendly 19, you see, but was never called into the HUAC chambers, and the government had a target on the Englishman's back for years, though he was never a member of the Communist Party. Instead of dealing with a legal system that had already put him through the ringer, more about that on a later date, Chaplin went into an exile from Hollywood that would last nearly 25 years. Although the U.S. Attorney General told the press that he had, quote, a pretty good case against Chaplin, Chaplin biographer Charles Malland concluded in his 1989 book Chaplin in American Culture that on the basis of the FBI files released in the 1980s on the matter, that the U.S. government had no real evidence to prevent Chaplin's re entry. It is highly likely that Chaplin would have regained entry to the United States had he applied for it. Several other blacklisters or subpoenaed individuals kind of went in the same vein of Chaplin, though they did by choice, and fled to other countries, including Mexico or to somewhere in Europe where the arm of HUAC could not reach them. The largest group of Hollywood exiles would remain stateside, though, relocating to New York City instead. There, few cared about the blacklist, so long as the artists could perform in whatever manner that meant. Writer Abraham Polanski, for example, managed to get a job with CBS writing for a television show. Specifically, You Were Here, which was a show about idealists like Joan of Arc and Socrates, historical figures, struggling against the tyrannical leaders of their respective eras. His name did not appear on the credits, though. Instead, he used a frontman, and 
I've used that word a couple times or phrase a couple times. If you don't know what that is, it's basically someone pretending to be the writer or acting on behalf of the writer, which was a practice that was rampant at this time. After being released from prison, Dalton Trumbo sold his beloved family ranch and moved his family to Mexico City, along with several other blacklisters. In Mexico, Trumbo wrote 30 scripts under pseudonyms for B-movie studios. Trumbo also won Oscars while blacklisted, writing under the name Robert Rich in some cases. One award he won was for Best Story, and the films are Roman Holiday and The Brave One, which came out in 1956. In the case of The Brave One, when the name Robert Rich was called out at the 1956 ceremony, everyone was eager to discover at last the identity of the man who wrote this film. In reality, Trumbo watched the ceremony with his family as a member of the Writers Guild collected the Oscar that he himself could not collect. Most people did suspect, though, that Robert Rich was Dalton Trumbo, and Trumbo was oft credited for several other films that were written under aliases. This bemused Trumbo, as he was always credited with writing good films and never any bad ones. With the support of director Otto Preminger, Trumbo was credited for adapting the book of the same name into the screenplay for the film Exodus, which released in 1960. Not long after, actor Kirk Douglas announced that Trumbo had written the screenplay for the upcoming film Spartacus, which also released in 1960, which would be directed by Stanley Kubrick. Eventually, the film premiered at a packed RKO theater. Both of these actions and the fact that there were those willing to stand up against the blacklist severely crippled it, especially after the movies bearing Trumbo's name in the credits did very well. Nobody seemed to care that a blacklister's name was gracing the silver screen once more. Some people picketed outside of Spartacus screenings, but audiences didn't seem to care. Spartacus was the must-see film in every town it was in. Even newly sworn-in President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, traveled out of the White House to see what all the fuss was about. Eventually, Trumbo was reinstated into the Writers Guild and was credited on all subsequent scripts, but the latter process would take decades. Trumbo also directed the 1971 adaptation of his book, Johnny Got His Gun. The Academy officially recognized Trumbo as the winner of the Oscar for the 1956 film The Brave One in 1975, presenting him with his long overdue statue. The Academy's recognition for his work on Roman Holiday would follow in 1993, 17 years after his death. His wife Cleo accepted it on his behalf. You'll hear a little bit of her speech at the next break. Of all the Hollywood 10, Trumbo easily had the biggest comeback. Even though Trumbo's victories were major ones, no one person can be given credit for the loss of the prominence of the blacklist. Another major player in bringing an end to the blacklisting was John Henry Falk. Host of an afternoon comedy radio show, Falk was a leftist active in his union, the American Federation of Television and Radio Arts, or AFTRA. He was scrutinized by Aware Inc., one of the private firms that examined individuals for communist sympathies and quote-unquote disloyalty. Marked by the group as unfit, Falk was fired by CBS Radio as a result. In retaliation, Falk decided to sue Aware in 1957, and the case dragged through the courts for years. The suit itself was an important symbol of the building resistance to the blacklist, however. It was especially obvious when his case wasn't settled within days. 
Falk would win his case in 1962. With this court decision, the private companies that were blacklisting people and those who used them were put on notice that they were legally liable for the professional and financial damage they caused by accusing people of communism. This also helped to bring an end to publications such as Counterattack or the Red Pages or the Red Book or the you know, all the ones, which widely and frankly recklessly accused people of being communists. Despite this, though, many would remain blacklisted for years to come. The year after Trumbo had won his Oscar, two more blacklisters took home the same award. Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman, both blacklisters, wrote 1957's Bridge Over the River Kwai, but the credit was given to Pierre Bull, whom could neither read nor write in English. Same thing happened the year after that with 1958's The Defiant Ones. Co-written by blacklister Nedrick Young, whose name is credited under the alias Nathan E. Douglas. The sneaky thing the filmmakers did here, though, was having Young actually appear in a cameo at the top of the film as the credits roll. When the screenwriting credit appears on the screen, the false name is shown underneath Young within the scene. Actress Lena Horne was blacklisted due to the African-American woman taking up several political causes, which just so happened to be causes some of her communist cohorts also happened to care about. Horne was not a communist herself, but that didn't stop the FBI from taking notice and ultimately had her blacklisted from Hollywood. Horn was forced to spend a number of years touring as a nightclub singer to pay her bills. Determined to get her life back on track, though, Horn publicly denied that she was affiliated with the Communist Party and wrote a series of letters to Muckety Mucks in Hollywood denouncing it. Eventually, she was able to return to film and television and also worked as a recording artist. Even this short stint on the blacklist didn't keep her away from politics. When the civil rights movement of the 1960s emerged, Horn was a prominent supporter. Paul Robeson, a singer, athlete, and actor, was targeted by the HUAC because he spoke out against American treatment of African Americans. Also, Robeson was revered in Russia for his incredible baritone bass singing voice. At the height of Robeson's career, the U.S. government revoked his passport and blacklisted him, severely affecting his finances and reputation as a result. In January 1953, playwright and soon-to-be blacklister Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, a four-act production that takes place during the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, began performing in New York. Miller's interest in the whole HUAC debacle had begun in the early 1950s, and he traveled to Salem to research the tragedy that had befallen that community as Miller was starting to see connections. If you don't know, the Salem Witch Trials occurred in Massachusetts when a group of young girls began accusing their neighbors of being witches. The ensuing hysteria led to 19 people being hanged, one person crushed to death, and five died awaiting trial, and hundreds were imprisoned on top of that, based on nothing more than the hysterics of a group of young girls. Sound familiar? Some other people thought so too. Well... Hewak didn't enjoy being compared to a bunch of hysterical preachers and lawmen and girls from the 17th century whom let that hysteria cause 25 deaths and destroy scores of lives. So it wasn't much of a surprise that not long after the Crucible opened that Hewak made sure Miller couldn't get a passport to attend the play's London opening in 1954. When Miller applied in 1956 for a routine renewal of his passport, Hueck used this opportunity to subpoena him to appear before the committee. Before appearing, Miller asked the committee not to ask him to name names, to which the chairman at that time, Francis E. Walter, agreed. 
When Miller attended the hearing, his soon-to-be wife, Marilyn Monroe, accompanied him, risking her own career in the process. Miller was sentenced to a fine and a prison sentence, blacklisted, and had his passport revoked because as soon as he got in there, he was asked to name names, which he refused to do. When Miller was asked why the Communist Party had produced a play of his, he responded, quote, I take no more responsibility for who plays my plays than General Motors can take for who rides in their Chevrolets. He was also questioned about his short-lived role as a communist sympathizer, to which he retorted, quote, I have to go to hell to meet the devil. He also gave the committee a detailed account of his political activities, and of course, Huack wanted him to name names, which Miller would not do. In August 1958, Miller's contempt of Congress conviction was overturned by the Court of Appeals, which ruled that Miller had been misled by the chairman of HUAC. Today, after doing some time on the banned book list when Miller himself was blacklisted, The Crucible remains Miller's most produced work and required reading at many American high schools. If I'm not mistaken, I had to read it my sophomore year. Despite the play's clear importance to American history, though, it is still challenged for its political message and, of course, of the occult aspects. The irony of all this, that despite being an alleged Soviet-loving communist, Arthur Miller's works were banned in the Soviet Union in 1970. Arthur Miller had also been close friends with director Elia Kazan up until Kazan's testimony, after which the duo did not speak for 10 years. Some of those who named names, like Ilya Kazan, argued for years after the fact that they had made an ethically correct decision. Others, who gave friendly testimony to HUAC after suffering on the blacklist, confessed they only did so so they could go back to work. Others more were haunted by the choice they had made by being a friendly. In 1963, actor Sterling Hayden stated, quote, I was a rat, a stoolie, and the names I named of those close friends were blacklisted and deprived of their livelihood. But we're going to talk some more about Elia Kazan because that dude doubled down. Kazan would defend his decision to testify for HUAC through his film On the Waterfront, which released in 1954, in which a dock worker testifies against his corrupt union boss. Miller would retaliate to Kazan's work by writing A View from the Bridge, a play about a longshoreman who outs his co-workers, motivated by jealousy and greed. He sent a copy of the initial script to Kazan, and the director asked in jest to direct the movie. Miller replied, quote, I only sent you the script to let you know what I think of stool pigeons. Kazan's legacy has a big ol' asterisk hanging over it. He was one of the most prolific directors of the 1950s and 60s, but he had betrayed scores of friends and colleagues on his way to the top. This asterisk would continue to the end of his days. In 1982, director Orson Welles was asked a question about Kazan during an interview in Paris. Welles replied, Cherie, mademoiselle, you have the wrong metteur en scène because Elia Kazan is a traitor. He is a man who sold to McCarthy all his companions at a time when he could continue to work in New York at a high salary. And having sold all his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer. Wells's film, Citizen Kane, had been considered to be communist propaganda by the FBI, and instead of dealing with all the 
PUAC bullshit, the technically blacklisted Wells just relocated to Europe from 1948 to 1956. A decade later, he found his way of expressing his distaste for the Red Scare through his film Touch of Evil, which depicted crooked law enforcement who chose to abuse their power by pursuing witch hunts instead of protecting their fellow citizens. Kazan was also denied several Lifetime Achievement Awards. Many similarly talented individuals from his era began receiving for Lifetime Achievement. Several argued that if Chaplin could receive his Lifetime Achievement Award, which he received in 1972, then it was time for Kazan to be celebrated for his work and to be forgiven for his part in HUAC. Chaplin was also barred from the U.S. for illegal stuff the government did, so I don't know why people were calling that the same thing, because it was not. I'm not the only one who thinks that way, as L.A. Film Critic Association's former VP Joseph McBride disagreed vehemently, stating that an honorary award recognizes, quote, the totality of what he represents. And Kazan's career post-1952 was built on the ruin of other people's careers. These two ideals were also split at the 1999 Academy Awards when Kazan received an honorary Oscar. Several stood and applauded, while others refused to do so. Applauders who commented on it later stated that they did so as to honor the work of the man, not the man himself. There is no easy answer to any of this, unfortunately. Eric Johnston, the president of the MPAA and the man responsible for assembling the group at the Waldorf that barred the 10 from working, that eventually led to the blacklist, did not have a happy end. In his later years, he began suffering from memory lapses and stuttering. After a stroke, he checked into a hospital where he soon slipped into a coma and died. Another friendly screenwriter, Leopold Atlas, named 37 names and never told his wife or children that he had done so. His family believes the harassment by HUAC contributed to his death. Atlas suffered three heart attacks between 1949 and 1953. His last testimony occurred shortly before his death. Hollywood lost a generation of artists due to the blacklist and spent the better part of a decade trying to recover from this egregious loss. Fear of UAC repercussions kept Hollywood fearful, leading to films with a lot of flash but little substance. But time slowly started righting the wrongs. The MPA, the anti-communist Hollywood movement founded by the likes of Walt Disney and others, after 1965 was pretty much done. Also that year, Variety called the blacklist all but dead. Of course, the head of hoppers of the world would continue fighting for the cause that they thought was just, but the power and the fear of communism and the grip that it had had was now in the rear view. As the Hollywood blacklist slowly dissipated, Hollywood has made films reflecting on the era. This has included the films Guilty by Suspicion from 1991, The Front from 1976, and Trumbo from 2013. These movies are a reminder that the blacklist was a dark spot on the history of America and its entertainment industry, an era where Tinseltown pandered to the hysteria of both the HUAC and private anti-communist organizations. Today, 75 years after the HUAC hearings, the term blacklist is still used in Hollywood, though of course there is not an official one like in the 1950s. The modern blacklist definition has expanded quite a bit, as people aren't blacklisted for political reasons, so much as being difficult to work with or uninsurable due to personal life activities, see like a Charlie Sheen or Lindsay Lohan. In later years, of course, a blacklist has given way to that of cancel culture, which is its own 
polarizing topic for another day and probably not this podcast, but canceling someone for whatever reason has roots in the ideas of the blacklist. William R. Wilkerson III, in November of 2012, wrote an article on his father's, W. R. Wilkerson II's, participation as the editor of The Hollywood Reporter throughout the HUAC hearings and how he was one of the major individuals calling people out during the HUAC hearings and was also one of the biggest supporters of the blacklist. Wilkerson III acknowledged his father's dark dealings, saying that they were rooted in his father's frustration of never truly making it as a film producer. According to Wilkerson III, quote, in his, Wilkerson II's, maniacal quest to annihilate the studio owners, he realized that the most effective retaliation was to destroy their talent. In the wake of this emerging hysteria surrounding communism, the easiest way to crush the studio owners was to simply call their actors, writers, and directors communists. Unfortunately, they would become the collateral damage of history. Apart from being charged with contempt for refusing to name names, none of these individuals committed any crimes. Apologies for certain entities' roles in the blacklisting have come through as the years have gone by. In October 1997, for example, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers and the presidents of four of Hollywood's unions, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, the WGA West, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists have all issued apologies for their roles during the blacklist. To this day, neither the U.S. government nor the Congress that carried out the hearings has ever apologized for HUAC's dealings and the devastating consequences American citizens were forced to pay. Files have been released over the years pertaining to the HUAC hearings that were previously unavailable to the American people, but they've also never released the records of those spring 1947 hearings, the ones that happened behind closed doors with all the friendlies and the HUAC subcommittee in Hollywood. Despite many attempts by press organizations to obtain them, all requests have been denied and it has been stated that those files are in disarray. There are hundreds of stories of other blacklisted individuals that we didn't even have time to touch this month. And if this interests you at all, I beseech you to look them up if you can. Even though this entire month was dedicated to this event, we've just scratched the surface of the chaos this era wrought, stagnating creative and social progress for decades. A time where families were torn apart, careers were obliterated, friendships were destroyed, and scores of American citizens became terrified of their neighbors, the us-versus-them mentality being born out of chaos and fear. Dalton was released from prison after serving 10 months for contempt of Congress. He had been blacklisted since 1947, and by this time we were broke. Our last asset was a small ranch we were living on in the mountains between here and Bakersfield, and selling it wasn't easy. So Dalton did what he knew how to do so well. He went to his typewriter, and the result was Rowan Holiday. Our friend Ian Hunter agreed to put his name on the script, and when it sold, we had the money we needed to finance our escape to Mexico City and what we hoped were greener pastures. We caravanned with our friends the butlers, we with our three children and a dog, they with their four children and a cat. <laughs> It was during our stay in Mexico that Dalton wrote The Brave One. 
Several years later, it would win an Academy Award for the best original story of 1956 under the fictitious name of Robert Rich. It didn't take long for the Academy to remove original story from its awards list. <laughs> I don't want to leave you with the impression that living under the blacklist was a steady procession of motion picture assignments and secret honors. It was not. Earning a living was a precarious business. The Hollywood blacklist put hundreds of people out of work, and across the country, loyalty oaths forced thousands more out of their jobs in all walks of life, from the factory to the university. It was a time of fear, and no one was exempt. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got a buy me a coffee where you literally just donate by buying me a coffee. I've also got some merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. If you've ever worked on a film set or a TV set or any kind of set, really, you've more than likely worked on a bad one. Next month, we're covering hellish film sets and the chaos that ensued in the pursuit of making a motion picture. And one or two of these films may have never seen the light of day. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side?